The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the 300th episode of The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. We have a great show for you today, released on Martin Luther King Day here in the United States. I try not to time these episodes too much. I don't plan them for birthdays or commemorative months or publication anniversaries or that kind of thing, mainly because in my own consumption of media, I tend to get a little tired of the same old thing. I read a lot, and and so when a new show comes out that's based on the life of Emily Dickinson, for example. Seems like I see an article about her, and then another one, and then another one, and then reviews of the show. And by the time I get to the show itself, I'm thinking, okay, great, Emily Dickinson. I love her. But now I'm in the mood for some Elizabeth Barrett Browning. I love pizza. I could eat it every day, but maybe not five days in a row. So, but, however, sometimes... These coincidences happen, and then why not? Let's run with it. Frederick Douglass on Martin Luther King Day. That is suitable, and Black History Month is coming up, and we happen to have Lorraine Hansberry on the schedule and an interview with Chigozi Obioma, who's from Nigeria and who lives in America now. And we're going to do another episode on Frederick Douglass, so we can take a closer look at one of his masterpieces today is the biography and a pair of essays that we'll be looking at, and in February we will do an annotated reading of one of his most famous works. So, Frederick Douglass was born a slave in Maryland in 1818 to a slave named Harriet Bailey and an unknown white father. As a child, he learned to read. We're going to have a whole episode on this in February. It's one of the great passages in literature, how he learned to read and what that meant to him and to the people around him. His name was Frederick Bailey then, and he escaped from slavery in 1838 disguised as a sailor. As part of his journey from Maryland to New York and Massachusetts, he changed his name several times from Bailey to Stanley to Johnson to Douglas, all to help him evade capture. When he reached Massachusetts, he found work and he gave speeches about his experiences as a slave and the differences between his life in slavery and his life in freedom and arguing against slavery one of these lectures was attended by William Lloyd Garrison, a famous abolitionist who ran a newspaper called The Liberator, who essentially was so impressed, he essentially hired him to go on tour speaking for the anti-slavery cause. Douglas gave lectures. He wrote three autobiographies and a novella. He published his own newspaper, and he became the most famous African-American of the 19th century and one of America's leading intellectuals of all time. He met with Abraham Lincoln three times in the White House. These are fascinating exchanges as the two men discussed the Civil War and other matters, and Lincoln reportedly said afterwards that Douglas was one of the most meritorious men, if not the most meritorious man in the United States. He was honored with government positions. He worked tirelessly for freedom and advancement of human beings everywhere, and his life and works are still models to be admired and studied 
and emulated. This is our 300th episode of the History of Literature, and Frederick Douglass is a great figure to honor on this day. Nothing against some of the others on our list, but 300 is special, and it's good to have a giant like Frederick Douglass helping us to hold up our tent. And on Martin Luther King Day, too, it seems the spheres of the universe are harmonizing. Now, let me preview the episode, what we're going to hear today, and then we'll hear from a couple of listeners, and then we will dig into more of Frederick Douglass's background and achievements and dive into two of Frederick Douglass's essays to give you a taste of what's there for you, should you choose to explore further. And we'll save the big kahuna, the famous parts of his autobiography, for our follow-up. So here's the teaser. Douglas believed that true art, that's the phrase, true art, was the path toward breaking down social and racial barriers and letting human beings see the truth and move toward the light. He himself practiced this in three different ways, used three different methods. One of these we have, one of these we have but don't notice, and one of these we don't have at all. It's like a riddle. We will explain all that today. But first, let's take a quick break and hear from some listeners. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. We've got something special today, some audio clips directly from listeners in honor of our 300th show. Let's hear one from listener Jacob, who offers a toast for the new year. To all my fellow brothers and sisters in literature, I'm incredibly grateful to call myself a part of your community. May the new year bring us healing, love, and more of the fantastic struggle we book lovers call life. Cheers, best wishes, and happy new year. Mm, Thank you, Jacob. That is beautiful. What a beautiful message. Let us hope. I had a listener who said, let's hope you don't have to run things down like you did after the attempted coup. I listened to the podcast to escape. And I thought, yes, let's hope. Let's hope I don't. (laughs) Let's hope. I chose to hear that not as, I hope you don't do that, Jack, because I didn't like it. But let's hope it's not necessary for you to do that, Jack. I would love nothing more than for things to be so pleasantly dull that we can escape the dullness rather than try to close out the insanity this year, but I guess that's a little bit out of our control. But thank you, Jacob, for reminding us that 
This is a struggle, but it's kind of a beautiful struggle, and we're all united in this struggle. There's a community here, and literature can help can help bring us together, even in spite of everything that's forcing us apart. And finally, let's hear from listener Casey. Casey works in a big box store, The Graveyard Shift, and he listens to the podcast while he's walking the aisles and putting things in place, getting ready for people who need to come in and purchase groceries and clothing and other essentials. We all owe him our gratitude for his work, especially this past year. And he has some words for all of us. Good morning, Jack. Hey, Mike. Um, Everyone else. I just, I just wanted to say that I think we have probably the best community of literature lovers in the world, by far. And I know I'm biased saying that because I'm a part of it, and I'm in a roundabout way speaking of myself. Um, but truly, I think there's no better group to capture the overall sentiment of, 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 of what Jack has been spewing the past few episodes um, about building more than destroying and creating more than decimating. And I, I, as I said, I don't think there's any group out there who's more capable of that than uh, us over here at the History of Literature podcast. So I hope we can all meet up after uh, COVID-19 for some real coffees and tea and uh, water or whatever anyone else out there prefers. I I look forward to that day. Thanks. Oh, Casey, what a beautiful message. Another beautiful message. This one actually made me tear up as I listened. I agree that we have the best community of literature lovers in the world here at the History of Literature podcast. Although I suppose I'm even more biased than you are. I'm proud of what we've built these past 300 episodes, along with our friends like Mike and Evie and all our other guests like three-timer Margot lived... <laughs> See? <laughs> there we go. If she'd only been on twice, I wouldn't have said that. Two-timer Margot Livesey just isn't the same, is it? Three-timer Margot is a different... Fettle of Kish, as they say, somewhere in the world. But now I'm losing the thread. The thread here is my gratitude to all of you, dear listeners, and everything you've helped to make possible. And my gratitude to Jacob and Casey for reminding us and me of how compelling literature is and how fortunate we are to have our books and to have one another. Bravo and many thanks. Let's take our last break. And come back with Frederick Douglass after this. Okay, the three forms of true art. That's the riddle I posed at the beginning. And for this, I owe a debt of gratitude to John Stauffer and Henry Louis Gates Jr., who set this out in the introduction to the portable Frederick Douglass, yet another winner from the folks at Penguin Classics. Boy, I know there are a lot of great publishers out there, but Penguin Classics just seems to come through 
again and again, at least for the books I like to read and reread and own, highly recommended. So remember my my riddle, there were three forms of art, one we don't have, one we have but don't notice, and one we still do have. So the one we don't have, and it's a big loss, are Frederick Douglass's live speeches. We don't have any video, of course, and we don't have any recordings of him talking, and this is a loss. By all accounts, hearing him speak was an amazing event to see him in person and hear him speak in the lecture hall. He was known for his rich, baritone voice, and this was an age when the lecture circuit was common. By the time he was in his 30s and 40s, he was as well-paid as any lecturer, including notables like Ralph Waldo Emerson. You can read his speeches or his essays, and you can imagine the authority that must have come out of his mind and body. He writes with command and with the kind of mastery of language and rhetoric that great political writers like Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln and Winston Churchill had. So you can kind of hear it, if you imagine, and you can hear it read by famous actors with booming voices, and that helps recreate the experience in your mind. But nothing would really be the same as hearing it from him. Hearing it from the former slave who educated himself, who suffered and endured what he suffered and endured, and to hear him delivering the speech in person in front of a small audience. And that makes it sound like someone delivering thunderous truths. That's when I describe it that way. That's what you imagine, right? An audience sitting and nodding soberly, taking it in. And I'm sure there was a lot of that, but there's more. Stauffer tells us that Douglas was, quote, a brilliant mimic and his imitations of his foes, especially of slaveholders, could draw howls of laughter. His performances coupled irony and sarcasm with pathos and sentimentality. In addition to being tall and strikingly handsome, he was also majestic in his wrath, as one sympathetic admirer noted. End quote. He himself was more comfortable speaking to the public than writing for it. In some ways, I was reminded of, say, a Sappho, whose poems we have, but not her music that went along with them. We only get part of the effect. What must it have been like to be sitting in that crowd with a man like that on the stage, knowing what he's been through and listening to the way he can command an audience and take them on a journey? He sounds like a combination of a gifted political writer like Lincoln, an intellectual like Emerson, a dramatic figure like a Hollywood actor, as handsome and charismatic as a Denzel Washington, maybe, a voice like Morgan Freeman, and the ability to inhabit characters like a stand-up comic, like a Richard Pryor. Well, for someone my age, Richard Pryor and his ability to inhabit voices and create characters is kind of the gold standard, but if you want to imagine Chris Rock or Dave Chappelle being added to our mix, feel free. Imagine that combination of all those qualities in one person who was also completely self-made and who also had the most dramatic life story of anyone in the room. How amazing and electrifying it must have been. It's no wonder that our guest, Amira Leone, chose him not long ago as the person to meet and spend some time with. And imagine what it must have been like to be Frederick Douglass delivering his words to those audiences, but on the, in some ways, it's hard for me to imagine. It's like trying to imagine my way into the mind of Mozart or 
or Michael Jordan. Hard for me to imagine what that would be like. I can only admire it from the outside, it seems. So that's number one. His oratory, which we don't have. Not even one of those tinny recordings at the end of his life when he's in his 70s. They might exist. It's possible. It would be great. He died in 1895, and the technology existed, but it doesn't seem he was ever recorded, or if it was, it hasn't survived, or it hasn't emerged, and that's a great loss for us. But anyway, I don't know how great a loss it is. Those earliest recordings don't always do justice to great oratory anyway. They sound so thin and far away and crackly. Okay, our next form of true art is one I said that we do have, but we don't really notice. Man is the great picture-making animal, Douglas used to say, the only animal that generates pictures of himself. He was the most photographed human being in the century. We have an astonishing number of photographs and daguerreotypes of Frederick Douglass, and that was intentional. That was by design. He was demonstrating how handsome he was, which didn't hurt his brand as a lecturer or journalist or newspaper publisher or author of books, but it was a lot more than that. He wanted people to see the truth. A lot of what made it into print were ugly pictures of Negroes, drawings, cartoon versions with ugly stereotypes drawn in a crude way designed to mock or repulse. And Douglas saw photography as a way to cut through that, a form of truth. You close your eyes and think of a slave or a former slave, and what do you see? Douglas didn't want you to see the cartoon drawn by a racist, with features that were distorted and unrecognizable. He wanted you to see the face of a human being. He believed it was important that you recognize the humanity of others. We've seen that with other groups, too. Jews, especially, come to mind. The ugly caricatures that help fuel ignorance and bigotry and hate. Douglas said, and you can see this in his writing, we are not talking about an alien species here. We are talking about human beings. Remember that always. Apply that to your thinking. So, the reason why I said we don't notice this form of art is because now we have so many images of people, photographs and videos and the internet and everything. I'm not sure we still see the power of just seeing a black person as a human being in the way that the 19th century might have. We see images, visual representations, accurate ones from photographs every day. We might still have bigotry. And there might still be racist cartoons out there. And we know that images can be manipulated. They can make things look shadowy or scary or things like that. But that's not exactly what we're talking about here. That's not the same as simply presenting to a a white family, let's say, who might not see black people that often, a picture of a simple human being up close who also happens to be strikingly handsome and dignified. Which brings me to the third thing, his writings. I've already listed those categories for you. Journalism, three autobiographies, a novella, but let's go ahead and hear some of it so you can get a flavor of what it's like and what it does. We'll start with an early piece of journalism published in the newspaper that he himself started within his first year. It's called To My Old Master. This is in 1848, and it begins 
Thomas Ald. That's the name of his former owner who's being addressed here. Sir, the long and intimate, though by no means friendly, relation which unhappily subsisted between you and myself leads me to hope that you will easily account for the great liberty which I now take in addressing you in this open and public manner. The same fact may remove any disagreeable surprise which you may experience on again finding your name coupled with mine in any other way than in an advertisement, accurately describing my person and offering a large sum for my arrest. In thus dragging you again before the public, I am aware that I shall subject myself to no inconsiderable amount of censure. I shall probably be charged with an unwarrantable, if not a wanton and reckless disregard, of the rights and properties of private life. There are those, north as well as south, who entertain a much higher respect for rights which are merely conventional than they do for rights which are personal and essential. Not a few there are in our country who, while they have no scruples against robbing the laborer of the hard-earned results of his patient industry, will be shocked by the extremely indelicate manner of bringing your name before the public. Let's pause there. You hear this? It's written in a 19th century declamatory style. The prose is well-balanced and measured. It's forceful, but it's not It's not whispering in your ear. It sounds like a speech being delivered, but it's patient and tolerant, too, meant to persuade. It's reasonable. Let's remember that people were surprised that Frederick Douglass, a former slave, could write at all, let alone write like this. And look at the argument here. He's saying, wow, yes, I'm putting your name out there, Thomas Ald. This is my newspaper. It's not even a year old. Perhaps you don't know that it's me, what I'm up to. I was Frederick Bailey when you knew me. I'm Frederick Douglass now. I'm writing this open letter to you. I'm linking our names. The last time they were linked in print was when you put out an advertisement to have me arrested again. And Douglas is saying, let's get real here about the playing field we're on and how tilted it is. I'm going to be criticized for writing this open letter to you and using your name. Even northerners will say it. How indelicate of you. How can you make this transgressions, this transgression? Even northerners will say that I've gone too far, that I never should have put your name into the public like this, calling you out by name. And Douglas says, hmm. How interesting that is. Thomas Ald, you didn't have much trouble putting your name out there when you were offering money for my arrest, did you? You were glad to be linked to me then. So I assume you won't object if I link yours. Tell some truths here about what's been going on. And as for the others, here he's previewing his argument. As for the other critics, on what do you base your criticism? That I have disregarded the rights and properties of private life. Are you joking? Are you kidding me? I am addressing a letter to a slave owner, a man who literally possessed all of my rights. I had none. I had to work for him, and he profited from it. I was subject to his every whim, subject to whatever cruelty he wished to impose. And you say that he has rights to remain a private person, to not be named my name, not to be ashamed of what he did? What is that? Where does that right come from? Some right of polite society to... Sweep slaveholding, the fact of slaveholding under the rug? Douglas says, 
These people respect rights that are merely conventional, while rights that are personal and essential, the rights of life and liberty and freedom, those are disregarded. Remember, this is still almost 20 years before abolition. This is during the the peak years of slavery. The essay is wonderful and worth reading. It's not very long. We don't have time to read the whole thing here. It continues making its case with the logic and irrefutable progression of a prosecutor slowly building his case. Douglas says, Ten years ago I was a slave, your slave. This is the anniversary of his emancipation, of the date when he ran away, finally achieved his freedom. He writes, quote, I have often thought I should like to explain to you the grounds upon which I have justified myself in running away from you. I am almost ashamed to do so now, for by this time you may have discovered them yourself. I will, however, glance at them. When yet but a child about six years old, I imbibed the determination to run away. The very first mental effort that I now remember on my part was an attempt to solve the mystery, why am I a slave? And with this question, my youthful mind was troubled for many days, pressing upon me more heavily at times than others. When I saw the slave driver whip a slave woman, cut the blood out of her neck, and heard her piteous cries, I went away into the corner of the fence, wept, and pondered over the mystery. I had, through some medium, I know not what, got some idea of God, the creator of all mankind, the black and the white, and that he had made the blacks to serve the whites as slaves. How he could do this and be good, I could not tell. I was not satisfied with this theory, which made God responsible for slavery, for it pained me greatly, and I have wept over it long and often. At one time, your first wife, Mrs. Lucretia, heard me sighing and saw me shedding tears and asked of me the matter, but I was afraid to tell her. I was puzzled with this question. Till one night, while sitting in the kitchen, I heard some of the old slaves talking of their parents having been stolen from Africa by white men and were sold here as slaves. The whole mystery was solved at once. Very soon after this, my Aunt Ginny and Uncle Noah ran away, and the great noise made about it by your father-in-law made me for the first time acquainted with the fact that there were free states as well as slave states. From that time, I resolved that I would some day run away. The morality of the act I dispose of as follows. I am myself. You are yourself. We are two distinct persons, equal persons. What you are, I am. You are a man, and so am I. God created both and made us separate beings. I am not by nature bond to you or you to me. Nature does not make your existence depend upon me or mine to depend upon yours. I cannot walk upon your legs or you upon mine. I cannot breathe for you or you for me. I must breathe for myself and you for yourself. We are distinct persons and are each equally provided with faculties necessary to our individual existence. In leaving you, I took nothing but what belonged to me and in no way lessened your means for obtaining an honest living. Your faculties remained yours, and mine became useful to their rightful owner. I therefore see no wrong in any part of the transaction. It is true, I went off secretly, 
but that was more your fault than mine. Had I let you into the secret, you would have defeated the enterprise entirely. But for this, I should have been really glad to make you acquainted with my intentions to leave. You see Douglas here, where he's talking about even the objection, the potential objection, that he shouldn't have run away because he did it in secret, and there's something untoward about acting in secret or having to be dishonest in some way. Frederick is covering all the grounds here. He's making his case. He's answering all the potential objections. He's closing every loop, cutting off every thread. After that, he talks about his escape and the new life he's found in Massachusetts. He contrasts that with his life in Maryland. And then, in a moving passage, he turns to his children. He has four children at this point, And what it's like to be a father. And he says... Dear fellows, they are all in comfortable beds and are sound asleep, perfectly secure under my own roof. There are no slaveholders here to rend my heart by snatching them from my arms or blast a mother's dearest hopes by tearing them from her bosom. These dear children are ours, not to work up into rice, sugar, and tobacco, but to watch over, regard, and protect and to rear them up in the nurture and admonition of the gospel, to train them up in the paths of wisdom and virtue, and, as far as we can, to make them useful to the world and to themselves. Oh, sir, a slaveholder never appears to me so completely an agent of hell as when I think of and look upon my dear children. It is then that my feelings rise above my control. I meant to have said more with respect to my own prosperity and happiness, but thoughts and feelings, which this recital has quickened, unfit me to proceed further in that direction. The grim horrors of slavery rise in all their ghastly terror before me. The wails of millions pierce my heart and chill my blood. I remember the chain, the gag, the bloody whip, the death-like gloom overshadowing the broken spirit of the fettered bondman, the appalling liability of his being torn away from wife and children and sold like a beast in the market. Say not that this is a picture of fancy. You well know that I wear stripes on my back, inflicted by your direction, and that you, while we were brothers in the same church, caused this right hand with which I am now penning this letter to be closely tied to my left, and my person dragged at the pistol's mouth fifteen miles from the bayside to Easton to be sold like a beast in the market for the alleged crime of intending to escape from your possession. All this and more you remember and know to be perfectly true, not only of yourself, but of nearly all of the slaveholders around you. Douglas goes on to talk about his sisters and his brother, who are probably still owned by Thomas Auld, if he hasn't sold them to another human fleshmonger. He doesn't know where his grandmother is. He says Auld may have turned her out like an old horse to die in the woods. What he's doing here is putting to bed any notion that slaves are happier on the plantation, that slaves don't mind it, that slaves are too lazy or feeble-minded to want to work themselves or, or to want to make decisions for themselves. It's a letter to Ald 
but it's an open letter. It's a letter to the public for a reason. It's a letter for white Northerners to read too. For anyone who thinks, oh, well, that's just how they do things down there, or who profits from the manufacturing business with the raw materials coming up from the South, who profits indirectly from the coerced labor, the stolen labor of the slaves, this is a letter for those people too. Douglas says, don't pretend this isn't barbaric. Think of the way you feel about your kids. Nothing is worse for a parent than watching your child suffer from illness or injury. Nothing. The helpless feeling that you can't protect your child, nothing's worse than that. And the converse of that is that nothing is more beautiful or powerful than parental love. Our society works because families love one another and care for one another. It brings out the best and even the worst among us. And slavery, for all its flaws and injustices in the public sphere, for all the harsh treatment and long hours and the chains and the marketplaces and all the things you can see, has an equally awful side that you can't see. It's the side that lives inside the mind. It's the feeling of a father that his kids might be snatched away from him at any time, sold, separated. It's the feeling that you can't protect your four little ones more precious to you than life itself. The feeling you can't protect them from the whip. You have no way to stop them from suffering. What would that system do to you if you were the parent who couldn't protect your children? who knew that they could be snatched away at any moment, would it harden you, make you cruel? Would it defeat you? What would that system do to you if you were the one who was going to have those kids ripped away? And what would that system do to you if you were the one who was going to rip those kids away and sell them over their cries, over the the shouts of the parents, or to beat them? or force them to watch their mother or father being beaten, what would that do to you as a slaveholder? How kind would you be when you return to your own family? How distorted would your brain be as you sat in church listening to Scripture? How much pent-up anger and fury would there be knowing what a hypocrite and sinner you are? That's the system we're talking about. The winners make money and lose their souls. I don't mean they sin and go to hell, although if you believe in hell, you can surely picture some of those slaveholders there. I mean they lose their ability to function as their best human selves. They live in a big house, but they're turned into moral monsters. I can't believe that blindness was enough to make them happy. A serial killer probably feels like he's happy, but that's not happiness to me. Living like a mummy, wrapped up in lies and atrocities, that you've justified, and making cruelty a part of your everyday life is not happiness to me. And it wasn't to Douglas, and Douglas is saying to his northern compatriots, to the white northerners, whose side are you on? Are you going to be on the side that does this to people? So, Douglas goes on to say, you probably own my family. Where are they? They were dear to me. Have you sold them? Are they alive? You've kept them in utter ignorance, so we can't even write letters to one another. They can't read. That's worse, says Douglas, than whipping us. Again, it's the appeal. 
We see this now in the Black Lives Matter movement. White people see videos of police brutality and say, well, why, why not comply with the police? It's better for you. Why are you objecting? Just, just do what they want. Or police have a hard job. Or if you don't, just don't resist the rest. You'll be fine. You can imagine Northerners in the 19th century saying the same thing about slavery. Well, once in a while, a, a slave refuses to work or tries to run away. What do you want the slaveholder to do? He, he probably doesn't want to whip them, but he has no choice. First of all, that's ridiculous. What kind of system lets humans whip other humans whenever they want? That's why we have courts and laws and trials before juries. It's why today police shouldn't be killing defenseless people on the street. We have a process to handle crimes because we're supposed to be a civilized country, not a bunch of Yahoo vigilantes who can shoot first and ask questions later. But secondly, Douglas says, fine. Whip us. Make that part of the workplace. That's an economic decision. It's like children being spanked or employees being beaten or something. But you know what's even more cruel? You don't let us read and write. We can't write letters. Physical cruelty is one thing. But you have taken away our ability to love one another as siblings, as husband and wife, as child and parent, and grandparent, you've taken away our ability to care about one another. And instead of learning the news of each other, I have to live in doubt. I can't tell them I love them. I can't ask them how they are. I can't even know. I have to wonder and suffer. My heart has to ache. And Douglas, again, this is for a wider audience, is saying, how can this be right? It's the question that America, white Americans in particular, had to face and have to face. The videos speak for themselves. The statistics are irrefutable. People of color have to live in fear of the police in a way that people with white skin do not. Parents have to live in fear that their child will be shot on the street or in their homes for no reason by the very people who are supposed to be protecting us. That's what has to change. Maybe it wouldn't happen to you or to someone you know, statistically. But you have to live in fear. We're asking a whole group of people to live with that kind of fear. That's what has to change. We can ask ourselves the same question as Douglas. A black mother today has to tell her young child how to avoid or navigate the police to make sure that they don't shoot him, even when he's done nothing wrong. How can this be right? How can this be the world that we live in? How can this be the way for us to live? How can this be a system that we just allow to continue? It has to change. Back to Douglas. He builds to a crescendo here, and he delivers a very powerful condemnation of slavery. He speaks man-to-man, father-to-father, to Thomas Ald, and delivers a kind of hammer blow, multiple blows that are so forceful. Reading them on the page... You can imagine him delivering these words in his baritone voice to a stunned and silent and sober audience. Quote, The responsibility which you have assumed in this regard, and so this was after Douglas was talking about not allowing his slaves to read and write, 
The responsibility which you have assumed in this regard is truly awful, and how you could stagger under it these many years is marvelous. Your mind must have become darkened, your heart hardened, your conscience seared and petrified, or you would have long since thrown off the accursed load and sought relief at the hands of a sin-forgiving God. How, let me ask, would you look upon me, were I, some dark night, in company with a band of hardened villains, to enter the precincts of your elegant dwelling and seize the person of your own lovely daughter, Amanda, and carry her off from your family, friends, and all the loved ones of her youth, make her my slave, compel her to work, and I take her wages, place her name on my ledger as property, disregard her personal rights, fetter the powers of her immortal soul by denying her the right and privilege of learning to read and write, feed her coarsely, clothe her scantily, and whip her on the naked back occasionally. More, and still more horrible, leave her unprotected, a degraded victim to the brutal lust of fiendish overseers who would pollute, blight, and blast her fair soul, rob her of all dignity, destroy her virtue, and annihilate in her person all the graces that adorn the character of virtuous womanhood. I ask, how would you regard me if such were my conduct? Oh, the vocabulary of the damned would not afford a word sufficiently infernal to express your idea of my God-provoking wickedness. Yet, sir, your treatment of my beloved sisters is in all essential points precisely like the case I have now supposed. Damning as would be such a deed on my part, it would be no more so than that which you have committed against me and my sisters. End quote. I don't know what to add there. I think that speaks for itself. No one would ever volunteer to be a slave. No one who understands what it means for the human beings involved should ever tolerate slavery. And Douglas says, therefore, let's stop lying about it. This is like the photographs. Let's see some truth. Let's stop pretending that it's something that it's not. Let's expose it and let all people live with it, not just the ones holding the whip, but the broader society that permits it to exist and who benefits from all this free labor at the expense of the human beings who are stuck in this tragedy. This is amazing stuff. Amazing writing, impressive, vaunted. I get chills reading it. We could do episodes just on this alone. But there is a part of me that feels like it's watching a one-sided argument today. I'm moved when I read Frederick Douglass, but it's historical. I don't need to be persuaded. I've long ago accepted that slavery was atrocious, and I suspect many or all of my listeners have too. And so while I love reading Frederick Douglass, and I think he should be admired by all Americans and required reading for all Americans, I want to, be, to emphasize something else for my listeners. For those of you who think, well, Frederick Douglass, sure, he tells us about slavery, and that was important, and I can read it as a kind of history lesson, and I hope other people read it, but, but what about literature? In literature, I don't always just want a one-sided argument. I want nuance. I want subtlety. I want conflict. I want to see people wrestling with their conscience. I want to be helped with the hard questions about life, the difficult ones, not just the easy ones. 
being against slavery is kind of a slam dunk for most people today. I doubt we have many listeners to this podcast who would take the other side with any kind of seriousness and say, let's try to understand the point of view of the slaveholders or let's argue against Douglas and argue that actually slavery was okay. Nobody's taking that side, but guess what? Guess what? That's not all there is in Douglas. There are a lot of ancillary questions that Douglas presents for us too. You can find him wrestling with topics in his same fierce, with his same fierce intelligence, his devotion to principle, and his beautiful prose style. Questions that are harder than just condemning slavery as an institution. That's in Douglas too, if you keep reading. Douglas made predictions about how people would react to different historical events, and those are fascinating to read. He married a white woman against criticism later in his life. She was a suffragette, which is another thing we often forget. We fought a civil war to emancipate the slaves, and we extended the vote to the emancipated the emancipated men. Women still couldn't vote for decades. Douglas was on the side of all people. All rights for all, he said. Supporters of his, black supporters, objected to his decision to marry a white woman. And he says in an essay that he views this as the future of America, one where we've discarded our prejudice and people have married, had children. He's half-white himself. There would be no objection if he married someone several shades darker, he says. But then someone several shades darker would be marrying someone lighter than herself. What does this mean, really? When there's this mix with people marrying, what does it mean when we're talking about this person is one-fourth black or three-sixteenths black? How does that matter to what we're trying to do here, which is to live in a society based on love and dignity and compassion? He notes that the point of this objection is never to bring people up. It's never to say, Oh, okay, you're part white, therefore I will accept you. It's always the other way around. It's always to say, you're part black, therefore you have to stay down a level where we're keeping the black people. So those are interesting essays too. They're not easy questions. We still wrestle with them as society and as individuals. And our own prejudices today are still implicated. People still make choices in this atmosphere. The problems haven't disappeared. So it's worth reading Douglas on essays like this to see what he thought, to see what he argued, and to see whether we agree or disagree. I want to do two things to bring Douglas back to the world of literature, where we read for fascination and exploration as well as to nod our heads in agreement. I'm going to finish with how the essay finishes. The one that I read before, the letter to Thomas Auld. He says to his old master, quote, I will now bring this letter to a close. You shall hear from me again unless you let me hear from you. I intend to make use of you as a weapon with which to assail the system of slavery, as a means of concentrating public attention on the system and deepening the horror of trafficking in the souls and bodies of men. I shall make use of you as a means of exposing the character of the American church and clergy and as a means of bringing this guilty nation with yourself to repentance. End quote. Those are powerful words. I'm going to shame you, Thomas Auld, you awful person who beat me and my siblings and kept us in ignorance. You heard the powerful condemnation that came before this. We can imagine from Douglas's 
initial paragraphs describing how unusual this letter would be, the kind of exposure that this might impose on Thomas Auld, the vulnerability he would feel at having his name out there connected with the actual acts of slavery. It's a brave and courageous thing for Douglas to do, to call out his former owner by name, shaming him, putting his name in print and attaching it to barbaric acts that polite society will be uncomfortable to know about and who will kind of blame Douglas for putting it in their face like this and calling out a single individual. There's a reason why the KKK wore hoods. Thomas Auld, you're named. Two things about this. One is at the time, Douglas believed that Thomas Auld was probably his father. Think about that. Think about what that would do to you. Now we're in the realm of literature. I have chills just thinking about it. He thought he was calling out and naming his father. Later, as he learned more about his family tree, he came to believe it was probably Thomas Auld's father-in-law who had been his father, but at the time, he thought it was Thomas Auld, the man he was calling out. Read this essay with that in mind. It's amazing stuff. It takes my breath away, just thinking of the courage and power that this man, Frederick Douglass, possessed. And then there's another aspect of this, which is where I want to close. Douglass says, quote, In doing this, I entertain no malice toward you personally. There is no roof under which you would be more safe than mine, and there is nothing in my house which you might need for your comfort, which I would not readily grant. Indeed, I should esteem it a privilege to set you an example as to how mankind ought to treat each other. I am your fellow man, but not your slave. End quote. What a person. What a great-souled man Frederick Douglass is. And he did this, too. Decades later, after the Civil War, when all the slaves had been emancipated, after he himself had become famous and successful and celebrated and honored with governmental positions and was one of the most famous people in the country, he went to visit Thomas Auld. He wrote about it in 1881. That's 33 years later. In an essay called Time Makes All Things Even. This was part of one of his autobiographies, I think. And he did set this as an example. As he said, I should esteem it a privilege to set you an example as to how mankind ought to treat each other. And that's what he did. He was aware that others might take a different position. He had been criticized for this when he wrote the piece. For people who said, how could you go visit your former slaveholder? What are you doing? You're diluting the anti-slavery position. There's no room for forgiveness for these people. They should burn in hell. And there's validity to that view. They were willing participants. They knowingly perpetrated cruelty. They're in the category with Nazis. What do we say about Nazis? What excuse do they make? That they were following orders? Is that acceptable? Is that enough to bring them back into polite society? 
to meet with them, to hold their hand? Is it acceptable to say of a former slaveholder that he was a victim of the system, that he had no choice, that he was carried along by economic pressures and forced into a system that made him cruel because it had its own kind of distorted logic? Like a a man who tortures prisoners or prisoners of war, if you've read those books. The jailers who take a sadistic pleasure in torturing their prisoners. Or like a gangster who kills. We think maybe it's okay as long as you're only killing other gangsters and only when it's necessary. Maybe there's a kind of moral code within the system that can mean you're not completely barbarous. Is there room for that with slaveholders? That's the question I like to think about because I don't know the answer. Not whether they should be forgiven, but whether we should forgive. Should Frederick Douglass forgive? I know we have to decide things like that. We have to decide it for common criminals and perpetrators of mass criminality. And Douglass maybe doesn't end the question for us because maybe there's no perfect answer, but he gives us his own views on it. And we can use them to help us decide where we stand too. It's an amazing part of the autobiography. He goes to visit Thomas Ald, and the passage is incredibly moving. They're older now, old men, Ald especially. He's quite old. And Douglas has all the history of enslavement behind him, the moral righteousness, the recollection that this man beat him and his family, kept them in ignorance, made their lives miserable. But he's old now. Slavery is, he's over 80. Slavery has ended. And Douglas has had some measure of revenge or satisfaction. There's been a bit of balancing of the scale. He's been more successful. He exposed Thomas Ald in print. It's not equivalent, of course, but there's a shift in the power dynamics here. Douglas is a celebrated, successful man, admired by presidents and the public, a hero. Ald is a disgraced former slaver, a, a system that's been discredited, a public emblem of the worst of humanity. Douglas could feel murderous toward him. He'd be justified in that. He chooses instead to view him with some measure of forgiveness, even compassion. I'm not saying this is the correct response. I'm saying that's a decision that we all have to make in matters large and small. How do we treat people? What are the consequences of those decisions? Douglas chooses to view him with compassion, clear-eyed compassion. He realizes that others might disagree and say, how could you treat him that way? How could you see him as anything other than evil. Why did you even go? Why did you go and erase all the hard work we've done? Why did you go and treat this man as anything other than the vile criminal he is? And Douglas, in the essay, says, Yes, during slavery, I would never have done it. But I feel differently now. He says, quote, But now that slavery was destroyed and the slave and the master stood upon equal ground, I was not only willing to meet him, but was very glad to do so. The conditions were favorable for a remembrance of all his good deeds and generous extenuation of all his evil ones. 
He was to me no longer a slaveholder, either in fact or in spirit. And I regarded him as I did myself, a victim of the circumstances of birth, education, law, and custom. Our courses had been determined for us, not by us. We had both been flung by powers that did not ask our consent upon a mighty current of life, which we could neither resist nor control. By this current, he was a master and I a slave. But now our lives were verging towards a point where differences disappear, where even the constancy of hate breaks down, where the clouds of pride, passion, and selfishness vanish before the brightness of infinite light. End quote. Ald is dying. He's over 80. Douglas wants to spend 20 minutes with him, apologizing for something that he had written in print and misstated that he corrected later when he learned the truth, and he wanted to learn more about his family from Ald, things only Ald could know. And he asked Ald about certain things in the past that he had wondered about. Ald is suffering from palsy. His hands are trembling, and seeing Douglas makes him weep. And Douglas weeps too. Ald calls him Marshal Douglas, respecting the honor of his office. Douglas at that, at that time was the U.S. Marshal for Washington, D.C. And Douglas says, call me Frederick, as you used to. Douglas is a Christian man, and he's a human being. He recognizes old age and dying for what it is, and that he believes that Ald is soon to be facing judgment, and Douglas is willing to let some things live in the past and not continue into the present. He asks Ald what he had thought of his running away. Quote, After he had become composed, I asked him what he thought of my conduct in running away and going to the north. He hesitated a moment, as if to properly formulate his reply, and said, Frederick, I always knew you were too smart to be a slave, and had I been in your place, I should have done as you did. I said, Captain Ald, I am glad to hear you say this. I did not run away from you, but from slavery. It was not that I loved Caesar less, but Rome more. End quote. They talk about Douglas's grandmother, and Ald corrects the record and says he took care of her in her old age. He didn't turn her out like a horse, as Douglas had speculated. Douglas accepted the answer. They try to clarify Douglas's birthday and age. It's like two men who've shared a life together in a way, like two old enemies who can only know certain things about one another and who can come together now that the war is over. Douglas is writing about his life. I know he's written fiction, and I know his speeches and journalism are amazing and powerful, but when he's writing about his life in the first person, that's where he becomes this magical character. That's where literature happens. Literature in all its power and glory, where the reader is invited inside a mind and a world and a set of concerns, and we are permitted to glimpse another person's soul. And when that person is a great person, like Douglas, with a great soul, it means we're permitted to experience greatness ourselves. Here's Douglas at his finest and most subtle, delivering not just a thundering proclamation, 
but the kind of gentle irony that gives us a glimpse not just of Douglas's politics or his arguments, but his humanity and his artistry. He says, quote, Before I left his bedside, Captain Ald spoke with a cheerful confidence of the great change that awaited him and felt himself about to depart in peace. Seeing his extreme weakness, I did not protract my visit. The whole interview did not last more than twenty minutes, and we parted to meet no more. His death was soon after announced in the papers, and the fact that he had once owned me as a slave was cited as rendering that event noteworthy. End quote. This is so good. Remember the essay we heard at first when Douglas says, Our names were linked. I'm linking our names now, Thomas Ald. I'm going to let the world know about your atrocities, and I assume you won't care to have our names linked because you linked them when you posted a notice describing my appearance and trying to get me returned. And here he is, an echo of that once again, the linking of the names, only this time it's Ald's obituary, which has one noteworthy accomplishment, if you can call it that, one noteworthy thing, which is that he once owned the great Frederick Douglass. Douglas is saying, here's a man, my jailer, my oppressor, who is dying now as we all will, and time and chance and death happeneth to us all. And all we can do is live our best lives and hope for a peaceful afterlife once we are judged by our Maker. What do we live for? How do we spend our time? Douglas has spent his life fighting for freedom and justice for all Ald spent most of his life fighting against those things. And Douglas says, look at this. I am willing to credit him for the handful of kind things he did within a barbaric system. And I'm big enough to allow that life threw this at him. This is how the wheel spun for him. He didn't have the power to resist his destiny, which was to be a slaveholder for most of his life with all the moral stain that that meant. He had to get up every day terrified of the people he owned, ashamed of his conduct or twisting himself into a moral pretzel not to be ashamed, living a life of lies, exerting cruelty, perhaps trying to find some ways to be kind here and there, like taking care of an older slave, Douglas's grandmother, rather than turning her out like a horse to die alone. That was the life that Thomas Auld left. And how is he remembered? What does his obituary say? He's not remembered at all, not by the world. The world cares nothing about his death except for one thing, that he had once owned Frederick Douglass. Time, the passage of time, takes him from this world, and he's nothing but a line in his former slave's biography, with nothing memorable other than his proximity to one of the greatest individuals in the nation's history and his disgusting conduct and connection with their relationship. Douglas ends his essay there, or ends the chapter 
in his autobiography there. And he points his way toward the future and how the two men will be remembered for the next, now it's been century and a half. Douglas's life is like a loud voice full of dignity and moral probity that still resounds through the chambers of history. And Ald's life is nothing but a grunt, a whisper, a dark note of infamy, the ugly echo of a lifetime of sin and moral shame. Okay. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Frederick Douglass. Oh, man, the hits just keep coming, don't they? And guess who else we might have this month? Jane Austen. The story of Jane in love. You will want to subscribe to the podcast to hear that one, won't you? And tell all your friends, right? If you've been with us for all 300 episodes, or if this is just your first one, I'm glad you're here. And I'm looking forward to number 301. And I hope you are, too. I think we might have our old friend Mike Palindrome here for that one. We'll see how things shake out between now and Thursday. 301, a new beginning. We're zipping through these on the two-a-week quarantine schedule. Hopefully we can keep that up. It helps to have individuals like Frederick Douglass to fascinate and inspire. And it helps to have listeners like you to support the show through patreon.com slash literature, where you can give a small monthly contribution. Hey, five bucks a month. That's not even a dollar a show these days. Or if a recurring contribution isn't your thing, or if now isn't the right time, you can always head over to historyofliterature.com slash shop and chip in with a virtual coffee or two. I'm grateful to all of you for everything you do financially and otherwise. If it's not the right time for you, hey, don't sweat it. We're still, we'll still be free. <laughs> We're here for you. We are part of LitHub Radio and the Podglomerate, www.thepodglomerate.com. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Pod Glomer, a sonic universe. <laughs>